Hi, and welcome to Book Club, a sales enablement pro podcast. I'm Olivia Fuller. Sales enablement is a constantly evolving space, and we're here to help professionals stay up to date on the latest trends and best practices so that they can be more effective in their jobs. In the execution of cross-functional initiatives, sales enablement is often the glue that pulls the efforts of multiple teams together. Responsible for landing corporate initiatives in the field, sales enablement must often connect the dots between leadership's core objectives and how the actions of reps will support those objectives. This means that cross-team collaboration is critical to the success of sales enablement. Enablement can help enhance collaboration by instilling accountable behavior within teams. To help us understand the importance of accountability in teams and how to build it, I'm so excited to welcome Eric Coriel, the author of Revolutionize Teamwork. Eric, could you please take a moment and introduce yourself and a little bit about why accountability in teams is so important to you and your work? Sure, glad to. Uh, so, well, my name is Eric Coriel, and, and really for me, accountability in teams started with my first job out of college. I got a degree in economics, had no idea what to do with it, so I got a job as a buyer. Um, and I was a pretty decent buyer, but I was also pretty good at understanding what the boss wanted and, and saying the right things. And I kind of got promoted as a result and kept working my way up the organizational chart. Um, and then as I got into a leadership role, being good meant you had to have teams that were good. And I discovered, lo and behold, that the people who were working for me did the same thing that I did. Uh, they would say what I wanted them to say, and, and they knew how to play the game well, as opposed to what they really felt. And it was at that point I realized this isn't going to get us to where we got to go. And then if we're going to be an effective team, an effective organization, I got to get them to say what they really feel. And I got to get them to become accountable, not to me, but to the results and to each other. And so that's when I started to play with the idea of, hey, there's maybe a different way around managing accountability. So at the same time, we also kind of, this was back in the 90s, early 90s, well, we were a relatively small company, but working with the big boys, the Baxters and the Abbots, and they were so large and so dysfunctional, we discovered the only way that we were going to work effectively with them is if we became functional. So we went to this idea of cross-functional teams way before it was a thing. Uh, and lo and behold, those teams were pretty much a mess. Um, and I realized that some of the same things I was learning about leading my own team applied to those cross-functional teams. Um, and the more I played with it and tried things and failed more often than I care to admit, um, started to figure out what was required to get teams to become accountable. And then with every job I had from that point forward, worked really hard at, at leading my team as a team. And most importantly, putting them in a position to be accountable to each other and not me and found that in the long term, they were higher performing teams um, than those that weren't. Absolutely. And that is a great introduction to your book, which centers on the importance of accountability. So what does accountability really mean to you? And why do you maintain that the concept that's often said of holding people accountable is actually a myth? Most people will say being accountable means you're going to do what you say you're going to do in the time frame you said you'd do it. And that's just kind of how we walk around saying that's what it means to be accountable. Well, who's always done what they said they're going to do in the time frame they said they do it? I think it's at the moment when someone doesn't do what they say they're going to do in the time frame they said they do it, you're going to find out whether they're going to act accountable or not. Some people, when they fall short of expectations, make excuses, they point fingers, they procrastinate, they hide. And those are all non-accountable behaviors versus those that are accountable. What they do when they fall short of expectations is they take ownership and then they start doing something different until they get it fixed. So to me, being accountable means if I'm not getting the desired results, I start doing something different until I get it fixed. 
And that's kind of the way accountability is inside of an organization. But if someone does not act accountably, or if they don't get the desired results, then someone else needs to step in and start being accountable. In other words, doing something different to get the desired results. And that's almost always the leader. It's, it's the leader's job. If someone's not performing or if the desired results aren't happening, the leader's the one that needs to step in and address those issues and start doing something different until they get a result you know, solved. So that's when I was told as a leader, hey, Eric, you need to hold these people accountable. Well, holding someone accountable looks like this. You tell them what to do. Uh, you make sure they have everything they need to get the job done. Uh, you incentivize them. Uh, you put measurements in place. You set goals. You give them feedback. If after all that, they don't get it done, you go in and you coach and you ask questions and you re-incentivize and you beg and you threaten and you cry and you pray and you do whatever it is you do. None of that works. You give them an ultimatum. If that doesn't work, you liberate them, right? And that's pretty much the process. So that's, that's the act of holding people accountable, which I did for a number of years until one day I asked myself, at what point did I ever really hold them accountable? Well, you can argue I held them accountable and I let them go. But up until that point, who really had the accountability? And what I realized was it's the leader. It's the leader that's setting expectations. It's the leader that's incentivizing and making sure they have needed the job done, giving feedback and coaching and begging and threatening. So I've come to believe that that notion of holding someone accountable is really a myth. What I hear when someone says I'm gonna hold you accountable, all I really hear them saying is I am taking the accountability from you and I now have it. And I think that's what we do inside organizations is we assign different levels of accountability to different people, right? So you're accountable to do this and you're accountable for that. And if an individual doesn't meet that accountability, their boss has to step in and take it from them. And if the boss doesn't meet their accountability, their boss has to step in and take it from them. And that's kind of how we manage accountability inside organizations. Yes, those are some great points. And actually, I haven't thought about it that way, where people often think of accountability as after the fact rather than being managed ongoing and kind of holding yourself accountable in a way and understanding what those behaviors are as an individual contributor in a team setting. So with that said, what makes a team accountable and why are accountable teams so rare? That's a good question. So as I said, inside in most typical hierarchical structures, it's the leader that has the accountability. And, and as a leader, I like that because I have control, right? But it's also exhausting. And at the end of the day, I feel like all the world's on my shoulders and the team will only be as good as to the degree the leader holds everybody accountable. But there is another way to manage accountability and that's to get the team to manage the accountability such that if performance isn't happening or someone's not getting the job done, the team starts to address those issues and it's not always a leader. And so that's the notion of what an accountable team is. And accountable teams are different than most teams because in most teams, while we call them teams, especially inside a business environment, you know, you have six people, salespeople that report to me, I call up my sales team, expect them to act like a team. But the inherent things are not in place there to actually make that team function like a team and especially not act like an accountable team. And so to get a team to become functional, which is really the first step, there's certain things that need to be in place. You need to have a clearly defined purpose of, hey, what's the team here to achieve? You need the measurements and metrics that tell you, hey, whether or not you're achieving that. Obviously, you need competent people and capable processes. I've yet to see a functional team that tolerated incompetence. And you need capable processes, right? Good communication, no decisions you can and cannot make, clearly defined roles and responsibilities. But probably the most important thing to get a team to function is you needs to be a shared fate. And by that, I mean what happens to one happens to all. And that's really the driving force that will get a group of people to actually function like a team. 
and inside business structures more often than not, the only shared fate that exists on a team is everyone's uh, having to survive the boss, right? The conversations amongst everybody would be like, did you hear what she said today? You know, would you see what she did yesterday? And those will be the conversations that create the shared fate for most teams. It's not a very strong shared fate. Um, it's not a very healthy shared fate, but it's, it's usually all that exists. Um, but if you look at sports, there is a shared fate. We either win the game together, we lose the game together. I mean, there, there are certain environments that automatically almost create all those things. Business, you have to take the time to create that. You get these five things in place, however, and you will watch a group of people actually start to function like a team. But you can have a functional team, but all the accountability can still rest with the leader. So if you want a functional team to become an accountable team, what makes an team truly accountable is if that team gets good and comfortable at dealing with their real issues together. And by that, I mean a real issue is any issue that affects the team's ability to achieve their purpose. So once we know what the team's accountable for, if something's getting in the way, i.e. a real issue, then if the team's gonna be accountable, they're the ones that are gonna have to start dealing with those issues. Good news is most issues aren't real, right? If someone's got bad breath, we don't need to bring the whole team together and talk about their bad breath. It's not gonna affect our ability to be successful. Uh, but if someone's not equally invested in the team, that's a real issue. Someone's not behaving by the values and standards which we agreed to, that's a real issue. However, the biggest one is if someone's not performing, okay? That's a real issue. If someone's not upholding into the deal, that's gonna affect the team's ability to be successful. But when I grew up in business, I was told, Eric, you praise in public and criticize in private. But if you pay attention, most performance reviews are done in private, and then you wonder why you don't have teams. Uh, if you look at a sports team, performance reviews are held in front of everybody, and it's totally normal. But in business, we preach and, and do just the opposite. In fact, I think most teams, when we get together for meetings, we actually collude to avoid talking about our real issues. We'll work really hard to avoid those tough topics. We'll talk about those issues in the meeting after the meeting, in the bars, in the bathrooms, in the hallways where it's safe, you know, the one or two people who we find safety in. I think most teams work really hard to avoid talking about their real issues. Uh, and they do just the opposite. But accountable teams don't. Accountable teams get in the habit of, hey, if something's getting in the way of us being successful, they don't ignore it. They don't talk behind each other's back. They don't sit around waiting for the leader, the boss, the coach, the parent to solve their problems. Instead, they learn to talk to each other through those things, whatever they are. And the second a team gets good at doing that, that's when they start delivering high results. That's when you start to trust each other, you respect each other, you have each other's back, and it becomes more about the team than it does the individual. But the only way to get there is to get that team comfortable and good at dealing with their real issues together. And that's the secret to getting teams to become accountable. Yes, I love the concept that you just mentioned of dealing with real issues together. And I actually wanna dig a little bit deeper into that. What are some of the challenges or obstacles that you think stand in the way of building accountable teams? And then how can team leaders help to overcome those challenges? At the very heart of that issue is getting people to say what they really feel. And I think on most teams, the reason that doesn't happen is I think on most teams, there's what I call a psychological contract. And by that, I mean, there's an unwritten rule. It's unspoken, but it's a contract that exists on most teams. And it's this contract that keeps us from doing this. And the contract goes as follows. I will not talk about your performance. You just don't talk about mine, okay? And I call it psychological because I'm willing to bet very few people have ever, ever had that conversation with a teammate. We don't sit to our teammate and say, look, I wanna talk about you, don't talk about me. But it is clearly a contract that exists on most teams. And I know it's a contract because if I were to walk into a team and start critiquing someone's performance in front of everybody, that person's gonna feel betrayed, okay? You just broke the deal. 
even though the deal was never spoken. And they're going to have no choice but declare thermonuclear war. And here we go. I mean, how dare you talk about me in front of everybody? I'm now going to talk about you. And so I think it's that contract that really keeps this from happening. Um, so how to overcome that, I think two things need to happen. One is that shared faith. There has to, the shared faith is what creates the motivation for people to say what they truly feel. Because if my success is intertwined with your success, if my failure is intertwined with your failure, I am highly motivated to have those conversations. But the second thing is trust. Okay? If, if I really trust your intent, if I know you're sharing these things with me just to help me get better, if I know you're sharing these things with me just to help the team get better, okay, I'm not so scared to do this. I mean, I got this little ego that doesn't want to be told it's not perfect, right? But, but if I know your intent is to help me get better, I get past my little ego pretty darn quick. If I trust your intent is to help the team, I get past my ego pretty darn quick. But if there isn't that trust, if I don't trust that's your intent, you know, my little ego flares in a heartbeat. I, I get defensive and, and I have all sorts of it, right? So the, the making this happen really requires that, that meaningful shared fate to everybody, that, that feeling of what happens to one happens to all. But it also requires getting that level of trust. And once you have that, then you can break the psychological contract because now we can go in and start having these conversations and we realize that we are, we are dealing with these issues for the betterment of the team. We are dealing with these issues for the betterment of each other. Um, if you don't do that, however, it feels like an attack and I tend to get defensive and I tend to feel that the way to play it safe is to avoid talking about these things. When in reality, that's the least safe thing you can do. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting that, you know, trust and safety are such core components to accountability in teams. And a lot of that, as you've talked about, really comes down to the culture within teams. And I think especially if a team is operating dysfunctionally, it's because they lack that culture of safety and trust. So with that in mind, what are some actionable steps that professionals can take to really build a culture of accountability within their teams and maybe overcome that dysfunction that's really harming the culture of their team? So I think to overcome it, some of the stuff you need to do is purely structural. And I kind of alluded to a lot of these things before. You know, there has to be clarity of what we're here to achieve. Honestly, you know, next time you're together with your team, start the meeting out, have everybody pull out a blank sheet of paper and have them write down what they think the purpose of the team is. I tell you, rarely, in fact, I don't know if I've ever had it happen where the answers matched. So the starting point is starting to lay the strong foundation. So the first step is what are we here to achieve? Second step is how do you put metrics in place that tell us whether or not we're achieving that? Okay, because if we're gonna be accountable, we're gonna do something different, we need to know when we're falling short. Uh, competent people and capable process. Honestly, most teams already have that. But the next thing I got to do is I got to build the shared fate. I got to do the things that will start to get the team to feel like a team. So often as a leader, I'm like, oh, you're responsible for this and you're responsible for that. And you're responsible for that. I have an issue with that. I talk to you. I have an issue with that. I talk to you. And then I wonder why you're not acting like a team. So I got to change the mindset of you guys are individuals with different accountabilities, but are ultimately here to achieve the team's purpose. And so I'm going to start to do the things that build the shared fate. I'm going to co-locate their desks. I'm going to get them you know, accountable for achieving a set of metrics together. I can do a compensation. Common enemy creates shared fate. Difficult challenges create shared fate. So my job as a leader then is to dial up the shared fate. Those things to me are, are the structural foundation you need to put in place. They're not hard. It just takes some time, energy, and focus. On the other side of the equation is what I'll call the behavioral changes that need to take place. And, and, and ultimately to build trust. And, and there's some wonderful work out there in trust. Brene Brown is extraordinary. There's all sorts of people have done great work on trust. 
But I think on teams, probably the, the most important skill set is our ability to learn to work through our issues together, whatever they are, to learn to talk them out. And that is the challenge, A, first of all, because of the psychological contract. But B, a lot of our behaviors, at least the behaviors I were taught, actually destroys trust. So probably the most important skill set I get to teach teams is literally the importance that whenever anyone talks, everyone speaks only on their own behalf. And by that, I mean, when I'm speaking, I can only speak from my own frame of reference. So there's two rules that I teach that make that a reality. First rule is I don't allow group pronouns to be used in meetings. I don't allow people to use the word we, they, our, anybody, everybody, because that's how teams avoid their real issues. Um, you'll hear someone say all the time, someone will say, well, you know what our problem is? Our problem is we don't follow a process. Well, who's we? Who's they? And the tendency is, I don't want to you know, point out the individual that's not doing it. I don't want to address the real issue. So I throw a pronoun at it and teams tend to then avoid their real issues. So my rule is, I mean, outside of meeting, of course, use those words. We won, we lost, that's great. But when I'm working through an issue, no. Um, if someone says we, I just play the interrupt, say just exactly who's the we, you know, who's the they. Because I can say, I'm not following a process. I don't see any one of you following a process. I can say the two of you aren't following a process. Just can't say we're not following a process. So the second issue is the second thing I do, and this sounds even crazier, but I don't allow questions to be asked in meetings. Um, believe it or not, questions are actually passive aggressive. And I, I'm being a little bit extreme here. The only time I'll ever allow anyone to ask a question is if they make a statement first, because almost all communication breakdowns take place when someone starts with a question. Because when I begin with a question, your mind will immediately start making assumptions around that question. Um, why, are you, why are you asking that question? What answer do you want to hear? And the fact of the matter is the brain always thinks the statements. So there's always a thought, okay? And what we tend to do is we take that thought and we twist it into a question for safety's sake. You'll hear someone ask a question like, don't you think it'd be a good idea if we did this? As opposed to saying, I think this would be a good idea, but I'm afraid to say, I think this would be a good idea because I could get rejected. If I ask it as a question, you guys are like, that's a terrible idea. I could say, yeah, I thought so too. I was just checking, right? I don't have to own it. Um, but I promise you that's where things fall apart because when I ask a question, it gets misinterpreted. You know, a great example took place two years ago. My wife and I put Christmas decorations all throughout the house and super late at night, we're super tired. I'm in the kitchen, almost done hanging light. She walks in, she asks me a question. She goes, don't you think it'd be a lot easier if you did it this way? Okay. Well, I'm tired to begin with. And I think to myself, well, no, I, I know how to put Christmas lights. I don't Christmas, Christmas lights for 30. I, and I had this complete meltdown. When in reality, she had a really good idea. She just expressed there's a question and I made some false assumptions around that question, right? Um, so the rule is you can make a statement. You can ask a question if it's a data gather question. It's just gotta come after the statement. So, you know, in theory, she would have said, hey, I've got an idea that may make your life easier, statement. Now she can ask a question. Do you wanna hear it, okay? Mm -hmm. I can make a statement. I think this is a good idea. Then I can ask a question. What do you guys think? I don't know what you think. Mm -hmm. So learning to get everyone to speak on their own behalf uh, is the skill set that literally enables people to start working through issues without judgment. Because when I don't speak on my own behalf, if I walk into a meeting and say something like, well, Olivia, um, we don't think you're doing a very good job. What do you hear when I say that? You hear the we. Who's we? You've been talking about me on my back. Oh my gosh. And trust is instantly destroyed which is a very different thing than if I say, hey, I don't see you doing a good job and that's okay, all right, we can talk about that. But the second I throw a we at it, all sorts of things start to fall apart. You start to feel like, hey, you've been turning me on my back, trust gets destroyed. So the secret is getting everyone to speak for themselves. I don't allow someone to walk in a meeting and say, Johnny and I were talking. Uh-uh, Johnny, come speak for Johnny's self. 
right? Almost every destructive meeting is, is laced with we statements. Interventions start with them. We think you've got a problem, bam. Feeding frenzies are full of it. And, and it happens because we talk about these real issues outside the meeting before we come to the meeting, and then we bring them together in a we statement. So that's why it's so important everyone to speak for themselves. Second piece to the puzzle, and the last piece of the puzzle is learning how to have the conversations in a constructive way. Every real issue, every issue that, that's gonna get in the way of any team being successful is always a conversation about the gap that exists between expectation and reality. I, so I expect these results, I'm seeing these results. I expect this behavior, I'm seeing that behavior. So every real issue has its source in that gap. Problem is, the tendency for us as humans is to put it off, put it off, put it off, to finally I'm sitting on so much frustration about my expectation. By the time I come to have the conversation, it's, it's destructive, right? So teaching groups how to learn to stop and slow down, let's talk about what our expectations are, okay? Make sure we're on the same page of what does performance look like? Let's talk about reality. What, what, what are you seeing, what I'm seeing? And then the third source is, the, is, is talking about the impact of the gap that exists. I mean, we may agree there's a gap, but we just disagree on the impact. Quick illustration goes back a year ago. My daughter was home at the time and her room forever has been a mess, right? Um, and it finally occurred to me, I've never really set the expectation that you keep your room clean, right? So I sat down and I'm like, Shannon, you're old enough now where I expect you to keep your room clean at all points in time. So we are now on the same page in terms of expectation. Well, the next thing I know, we're having the reality conversation because she starts telling me that it is clean. I'm like, no, that's a mess. That's a federal disaster. In fact, this is what a clean room looks like. Okay, so I finally got her to the point where, okay, she agreed it wasn't clean, but now we're having the third conversation, which is the impact of the gap, because her next kind of conversation comment to me was, well, so what? I mean, I keep the door closed. I don't let my friends in the room. She literally goes, it's safe. I mean, if I trip, I fall into a bunch of clothes. Why is it a big deal? My room's clean. <laughs> so I'm like, well, why is it a big deal? My first thought was, well, I had to, so you should. I'm like, I'm not winning that argument. And then I started occurred to me, I'm like, you're nine months away from going off to college. And if your roommate's a neat freak and you can't keep a room clean, that's a problem. And quite frankly, my job as an adult is to send you off into the world as a semi-functional adult. And part of being a semi-functional adult is being able to keep a room clean, right? And she's like, fine, what do I need to do to prove to you I keep a room clean? I'm like, well, keep it clean for 30 days straight. Sure enough, she did. <laughs> Day 31, the room's a mess again. But the point was, is we had to work our way through each of those issues. And I will tell you, every real issue has its source. So as I get to work with teams, I can get any team through any issue, as long as everyone speaks for themselves. And as long as they take whatever that issue is and learn to break it down into those components. And with that, you can take on virtually anything. And as teams start to take on these issues, whether it's performance or investment or behavior, then trust starts to get built. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes and it, and it becomes second nature. But learning those skill sets is, is not natural because I was always told, ask questions, don't make statements, don't use I, all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I've come to realize, if you want to create an accountable team, it's, it's much the opposite. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something important there about performance expectations and really making sure that those are very clear and everyone knows what good is supposed to look like. So in terms of metrics for accountable behavior, what are some of the criteria for those metrics that teams should adopt? Uh, and you make a good point. So it's one of the big things is like, go into a team and ask every individual what they're accountable for. And they're almost gonna only talk about their own world. Okay, I'm accountable for sales in the North Territory. I'm accountable for the sales in the South and the East or the West or whatever it is, right? 
if a team is gonna be accountable, what needs to be clear is what is the team accountable for, okay? And so by that, I'm saying, okay, look, you guys, you as a team are accountable to generate X number of new customers, total sales, margins in the job report, whatever that is. And I'm gonna hold you accountable as a team to those metrics. So if one of you is not upholding the deal, um, you need to start talking to each other and start dealing with those issues. And that's really the essence of an accountable team. But you're not gonna be able to do that unless you have really clear metrics. So the metrics, first and foremost, have to tie exactly back to that purpose, right? So at the end of the day, if a leader, I got to look at those metrics and say, you know what? If they're hitting on those metrics, the team is meeting their accountability. So having done this for longer than I care to admit, a few things that I've learned, uh, first of all, you can't have too many. I, I, I don't know I've ever seen a team successfully be accountable for more than like five metrics. So my first rule is you should be able to clearly determine whether or not you're achieving the team's accountability with three to five metrics. I mean, you one in some cases but no more than five, okay? And usually some, some metrics are submetrics, right? So we're gonna measure activities and things that lead to the overall metric. So you wanna make sure the metrics you're truly focusing on are tied directly to the purpose statement. So very often I'll color code the purpose statement in a certain section of the purpose statement, I'll color code to the actual metrics. So we can tie a one-to-one -one correlation between those things. So that's probably the first thing uh, that's gotta tie directly. Second thing is you can't have too many. Third, and, and this is a little bit more subtle, but you gotta make sure the team has influence um, over those metrics. Because if you're gonna ask a team to be accountable for something, and yet they have very little influence over it, as soon as the metric starts going south, they're gonna do this, and it's not our fault, okay? So one exercise I'll very often do is, is once we agree on the metric, I'll get together with the team and say, okay, create a little T-chart. What's in your control, what's outside of your control? And that happens a lot in the sales arena, right? So what's outside of our control? Well, um, what competition does, uh, commodity prices, um, economy itself, you know, and they'll start studying all these things that are out of their control. Well, what's in your control? I'm like, okay, then why am I paying you, right? But what is in your control, our effort, how we approach the customers, you know, the, the sales system we use, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so once we get that up there, then we have to look back and say, hey, is enough of this metric truly inside of our control where we can be accountable to it? If so much of it is outside of our control, then I'm going to say it's a bad metric. I just had this happen two, two weeks ago, so it's fresh in my mind, but working with a manufacturing team, and one of their metrics has been cycle time from the time a, a job gets released to the floor to the time it's out the door. And they've been struggling with it for about a year, and the, and the root cause kept coming back to, a, a, they had to outsource the parts to a plater, and they couldn't control the plater's lead time. And it was, you know, when the plater fell behind, they started to struggle. And so it was a bad metric from that perspective because they really didn't have, they, they swapped out platers and it continued to be a problem. So what they did to make that metric inside their control is they started measuring the time it went to the floor to the time it went to the platers, stopped the clock, started the clock when it came back to finish. Now they were in control of all those things. So they had to tweak the measurement so that it was something that they were inside of control of. So I think the third component is you have to make sure that they have a high degree of influence around those metrics. And then the fourth thing is it's something that you, it needs to be measurable on a timely basis. If it's a metric that you can only gather data around like an employee survey or something like that once a year, it's really hard to be accountable to that. So you really wanna pick a metric that has a regular cadence of feedback. So we gotta find ways to, to generate that feedback. So even if it's customer satisfaction feedback, we're gonna cycle it over a period of time as opposed to just hitting everybody once a year. So we're gonna get ongoing data and then we can use that data to get better. And I'd say those are probably the four most important things to, to having good metrics.
Those are fantastic tips. I want to go back to something that you mentioned right at the start of this conversation, which was around cross-functional teamwork. So in sales enablement, professionals are often responsible for leading a lot of cross-functional projects. And I'm curious to hear from you, how can accountability be built in that cross-functional team dynamic where the team might not necessarily be working together daily, but they still need to come together to meet very specific organizational goals? You're going to get me on my soapbox here. Um, okay, more and more organizations are going to that model. If you think about the hierarchical model, a hierarchical business model actually started in the early 1900s. When companies started to grow in size, we had to figure out how to organize them, and we adopted the military model. The Romans get the credit, right? And the military of generals, officers, soldiers, thinking, telling, doing. And we would specialize. So we'd have a sales department, operations, purchasing, whatever it was. But that's not the way business flows. You know, in a slow moving world back in World War I, World War II, that model worked. You know, we could send all the information up to the top. They would make the decisions, come down from on high, tell everybody what to do. The frontline people would do it. Today's world is so much faster. We need the decisions being made closer to the customer. We need that cross-functional perspective um, in that we can't just work in these silos and make the best decisions. So every organization I know is wrestling with that. And the cross-functional team idea is you know, the, the first step at doing that. The problem with cross-functional teams is this. We realize that in order to, to best service the customer, we need someone from sales and we need someone from purchasing and maybe an estimator and project manager. And we're going to pull these people out of their apartments, put them together and say, okay, be accountable to each other. The problem is at the end of the day, if I'm the inside salesperson, I'm reporting to my inside sales manager. If I'm the purchasing person, I'm reporting to the purchasing manager. If I'm the project manager, I'm reporting to you. Know. And so while we are supposed to be accountable to each other, at the end of the day, as a human being, I'm going to look to my source of separation, which is my boss, which isn't on the team. And that's where these cross-functional teams start to break down. And I'll call it a matrix organization. So in order to get that to work, it takes a leap of faith. And the leap of faith is very much what we've been talking about today. And that is to get the team to become truly accountable. But that requires then that I am now accountable to my teammates and not to my boss. So my performance review is no longer going to come from my boss. My performance review is now going to come from my team. I may still have a boss, but the boss is now a coach. So the purchasing manager is making sure that all the purchasing people are using the best software, their personal development, all that kind of stuff. But those purchasing, those buyers aren't reporting to me. They are now reporting to the team. And that's the only way long-term to make this work. Okay. Not that you don't need the managers, they're still there, but they're there in a different role. It's much more like coaching. Coaches don't get to play the game, but I'm here to put the players in position so they can be successful. I'm gonna create a good playbook. I'm gonna you know, train, I'm gonna do all those things necessary so they can go play the game and be successful. And that's a different mindset for leaders. I mean, I think as a leader, it's hard because they got to let go of control, right? Um, and that's probably one of the biggest single challenges in making this happen is getting the leaders comfortable letting go of control. But they have to, and just like a coach in a sport, and they can't go out and play the game. And they'll all tell me, oh man, during the, Eric, during the game, Eric, it's pretty helpless feeling. I want to run out there and tell them what to do or do it for them, but I can't. It's no different at work. You create these cross-functional teams. All you can do is put them in a position to be successful and trust that they're going to be successful. Well, if they're not, the team has got to step up and take the accountability. So you got to do these things that we've talked about, put the purpose metrics, all those things in place. And then if a team isn't hitting those metrics, the team has got to get together and start resolving those issues. And they have to know how to have the difficult conversations and work through those things. And ultimately, if a team can't do that, the leader's got to step back in and take it from them. Okay, But it's not 
a natural act. So in order to make this work, you, you got to kind of go all the all the way in and get these teams to become accountable to each other, as opposed to doing half and half where, hey, you're a team, but at the end of the day, you report to different people. And, and that's a leap of faith. And it's not easy to do. But that's really what's required to get those cross-functional teams to work. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting that you mentioned that it takes really a mindset shift, especially from the manager's perspective, and really being more of a coach rather than solely managing performance. So I just want to ask one final question, and this has been a great conversation, by the way, um, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned as really being the core ingredient of accountable teams, and that's the concept of shared fate. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. How do you create a shared fate and why is that so integral to the success or, or even the failure of a team? You really touched on what's most important. Um, and I will I'll tell people, you know, not every group of people should be a team. Okay. You've got to decide, do I really want them to be a team? If you do, okay, you need to build that shared fate. The stronger you need that team to be, the greater the shared fate you need it to be. So let me illustrate. And so this will happen in sales environments too, where all the sales manager call me up and say, Eric, why don't you work on my sales team? I'm like, why? And they're like, well, teams outperform individuals. I'm like, not always, but keep talking. Well, I got four salespeople. I got Johnny's got the North and Beth has got the South and Mary's got the East and uh, Frank's got the West. I'm like, okay, well, how do you pay them? Well, they get a base pay, but they all get a pretty big commission check based upon the sales they generate in their respective geographies. I'm like, all right, you want them to be a better team? Well, yeah, simple. Take their commissions, add them up, divide by four, pay them the same. Oh, I can't do that. Mary's my rock star. Johnny's brand new. Mary's going to be giving money to Johnny that Mary earned. That's not fair. Do you want Mary helping Johnny or not? If you do, then you need to create a team and you need to create a shared fate. You may decide, you know what? I just want Mary to worry about the South and Johnny to worry about the North and go. In which case, I'm going to say, don't sweat the team thing. But if you want them to act like a team, if you want them to help each other, if you want them to be investing in each other, then the very first thing is you have to create a meaningful shared fate. Okay. And that's what's going to start to create those conversations and do the things necessary to get them to act like a team. Now, I also have to give them the ability to influence each other. Mary's got to be able to go to talk to Johnny and coach him up and help him out. You know, because I can't just say, hey, you're going to share in the commission, but you have no influence over that person. Right. So the key becomes how do you build that shared fate? High performing teams need high levels of shared fate. A classic illustration is the military. I actually have a good friend, he's a former Marine, accidentally called him an ex-Marine once, that was a mistake. And, and I asked him, because we were talking about boot camp, I'm like, well, what happens in boot camp? He goes, well, Eric, it's different depending upon where you go, but it's all to the same effect. I'm like, oh yeah, what's that? He goes, well, I figured it out the second day. I'm like, well, what happened? He goes, well, the sergeant came in the barracks, woke us all up at 0500, five in the morning, dragged us all out to the beach and told all of us that we'd be going from here to over there as fast as we possibly could along the marked obstacle course. It turned out to be a 90-minute physical gauntlet. We swam to the point where we almost drowned. We ran forever. We climbed these walls. We crawled under barbed wire. Then we had to run around and around this obstacle course in the forest until they finally blew the whistle and we got to finish. He goes, yep, and I finished first. I'm like, that's awesome. He's like, nope. I'm like, why? He goes, well, they lined us up on the order of our finish, and the sergeant got two inches in front of my face and tore me apart. I'm like, why? You won. Yeah, I won, but I also happened to pass up all my teammates who were struggling in the forest, and I kept going. 
And I figured out really quick, it didn't matter when I finished. It only mattered when everybody else finished. And that's what they did during basic training is they made your life increasingly miserable. So you figured out it was about the team and not you. And if you didn't, they got you out. Because in the heat of the battle, you better have each other's back or people's lives are at stake. Because Eric, everything they did was to build shared faith. We all lost our hair. We all wore the same clothes. We all ate the same food. Point being, the stronger you need a team to be, the stronger the shared fate you need to create. So in those environments where it's high stress, high pressure, I have to do everything I can to build shared fate. Other teams may not require that same level of shared fate, but there's lots of ways to do it. And I really think it stems from how does the leader treat their team, okay? You know, as a leader, I, I would, you know, if I had a sales issue, I'd talk to my sales manager. If I had an HR issue, I'd talk to my HR manager and then wonder why they weren't acting like a team. It wasn't until I started saying, okay, guys, as a team, you are accountable for the sustainable, profitable growth of this organization. And I expect you as a team to deliver on that. And I started talking to them in that way. Did they actually start acting like a team? Because now all of a sudden the HR manager was equally you know, owning the sales metric. And she'd run over to the sales manager and say, here's what I'm seeing. I got these ideas. And they started investing in each other. So you can build that shared fate in a variety of ways. You can do it by making it hard to get on the team. Um, when we come out of COVID and go back to the office, if you really want to build shared fake, take your entire team and say for the next eight weeks, we're all going to work together out of this conference room. Bring your laptop and, and that creates a sense of shared fate. It'll be amazing what that does. A common enemy creates shared fate. Uh, passion around she means something meaningful to us creates shared fate. You can do it with compensation. There's all sorts of ways to do it. In fact, if you ever want good examples, I always tell people, go home, watch Miracle on Ice. Uh, watch Remember the Titans. Uh, watch Saving Private Ryan. They're all stories of these teams that did extraordinary stuff because the leader knew how to build a shared fate, whatever that was. And, and that's why that's so important because without that shared fate, you're really not going to have a team. In fact, my definition of a team is a group of individuals with a shared fate. The stronger you need that team to be, the greater the shared fate you have to build. And if you're not able to create one, then I would probably say, you know what, don't sweat the team thing. Okay, go get a group of individuals, go do some great stuff, but don't worry about the team thing. Just know that the accountability is always going to be on your shoulders, which isn't the worst thing, right? You have got lots of control, but the downside is it's exhausting and it puts a lot of pressure on you because the team's only going to be as good as you are. If you want the team to perform, you know, to a higher level, then you're going to have to learn to let go and put them in a position of becoming that team by doing all the things we really talked about. Well, those are some fantastic and very powerful examples. So thank you so much for sharing those. And thank you again for taking the time, Eric, to talk to our audience and share a little bit of your expertise in how to build accountable teams. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to our audience, thanks for listening. For more insights, tips, and expertise from sales enablement leaders, visit salesenablement.pro. If there's something you'd like to share or a topic you'd like to learn more about, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you.